Turn in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 26 tonight, Genesis chapter number 26. Man, isn't a blessing to be in the house of God. I enjoy getting to be here. I'm glad that you come back tonight. Amen. I know the devil didn't want you to, and I know the flesh didn't want to, but uh, I'm glad that you came back this evening. Genesis chapter number 26, and uh, I'll preach to you the message that I had on my heart this morning. And uh, I had every intention of preaching on this this morning, and God just wouldn't give me liberty to go any other way than what we did this morning. But I still have this message on my heart. And a good message is like a bad cold. Amen. Ain't no way to get rid of it but to give it to somebody else. Amen. So uh, we want to we wanna try to bless you in that way. Genesis chapter number 26. And uh, let's begin reading in verse number 1. Genesis chapter 26. Verse number one. Now, here in this passage, we are in the life of Isaac, the son of Abraham. The Bible says this in verse one. There was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went unto Abimelech, king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee. I will bless thee. For unto thee and to thy seed I will give all these countries. And I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven. And will give unto thy seed all these countries. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And Isaac dwelt in Gerard. The men of the place asked him of his wife, and he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, She is my wife, lest, said he, the men of the place should kill me for Rebekah, because she was fair to look upon. And it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out at a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was sporting with Rebekah, his wife, his flirting with. And Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, of a surety, she is thy wife, and how saidest thou she is my sister? And Isaac said unto him, Because I said, Lest I die for her. And Abimelech said, What is this that thou hast done unto us? One of the people might lightly have lined with thy wife, and thou shouldest have brought guiltiness upon us. And Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He that toucheth this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Then Isaac sowed in that land and received in the same year an hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us gather back in this place. Thank you for, Lord, how you moved on my heart this morning, what you did in me. Lord, I pray that what was said and done this morning would uh, redound unto your glory throughout all eternity, that, Lord, it would make an eternal impact. But, Lord, as we rejoice and praise you for what you have done, we turn our attention now to what must be done in our hearts and minds. And I pray that you would, Lord, have the liberty to work in our hearts and lives. May Christ have the preeminence in this service. May the preached word of God have authority. And, Lord, may we be obedient receivers of the word of God. Lord, not just hearers only, but doers of the word. Father, we love you. We thank you for what you've done. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you're a student of the Bible, then there are two things that are immediately apparent to you as you approach this passage. One is the immediate context of it, that this is dealing with the life of a very familiar, we could use the word famous individual in Scripture, 
a man by the name of Isaac. He is the son of Abraham, uh, who uh, has been known as the father of the Hebrew people, uh, a patriarch of the faith. Uh, the Bible describes Abraham as a Syrian ready to perish until the voice of God speaks to Abraham and commands him to leave his countrymen, leave his family, and to come into the land of uh, Canaan. In fact, it doesn't even say to the land of Canaan. It just says, I'll start speaking and you follow my voice. By the way, that's mostly how God works. I, he don't give us the whole plan because he knows we'd try to run ahead and we'd mess it up. He says, I'll start speaking and you follow my voice. Amen. And uh, so uh, God commands Abraham to follow him, brings him into the land of Canaan. Abraham will go on to have uh, a son by the name of Isaac. And Isaac would be the promised seed through which the lineage of the promises of God would be carried forth out and down through the nation of Israel. But if you're a student of the Bible, there's a second thing that you notice, and that's that although we are at a unique moment in biblical history, it sort of feels a little like a rerun. Because if you've studied your Bible, you know that actually there is an almost identical experience that takes place to Isaac's here found earlier in Genesis chapter number 13. And it doesn't involve Isaac, but rather it involves his father, Abraham, who, when there's a famine in the land, goes down into the land of Egypt and tells an identical lie about his wife, about Isaac's mother, Sarah. I don't want to preach to you on Abraham's blunder, but it's important that we notice it as we come to the Word of God tonight. Let me say this tonight. There are three important truths about this passage that are worth noting, and they're all contained in verse number 1. Notice the first phrase. The Bible says this, there was a famine in the land. Once you notice, number 1, the crisis in this passage. A famine is a devastating thing. We, thankfully, have lived in a time, particularly here in the West, where we've really not had to face famine. We ain't even eat up all our Vienna sausages. Somebody say amen to that. We still got potted meat and cranberry sauce in the cupboard. Amen. And you get hungry enough, some potted meat and cranberry sandwich going to look awful good. <laughs> we have never really in our generation had to experience. It's always funny to me, and I don't mean to belittle a serious problem, but it's always funny People talk about food insecurity. I have food insecurity all the time. I sat at a restaurant today and ordered my meal and immediately felt insecure as to whether it would be enough when it got here. Amen. And uh, I remember seeing a billboard one day that said this. It said, fight to stop hunger. And I thought, well, that's a losing fight. Now, you can fight to stop starvation. Amen. Uh, you can stop the fight to stop vegetarianism, amen, and we ought to. But you ain't going to stop hunger. People are always going to get hungry, amen. I'm living proof of that reality. But a famine is a devastating experience. It's detailed for us at times in the Word of God, times when it was so dire that literally people would eat the corpses of their loved ones to have to survive. And it is not a small or slight thing when we come to this verse and read about this crisis. It is a serious event. You know, in your life, there's going to be times you're going to face serious things. I'm talking about life or death. If you've never experienced it, you ought to bless the God of heaven, and you ought to keep a weary eye out, because sooner or later, you're going to face some crises in your life. 
Isaac's problem is not a small problem. He is a man with a wife and with children and with people that are depending on him. He is coming into a place in his life, a season, where he must deeply depend upon God to provide for us. Man, it would be good if during the good times we learned how to depend on it. So that when it came during the bad times, we were already practiced up on it. And I think Isaac had never really learned to depend on the Lord during these seasons of famine. But now there is a crisis that arises. Number two, look what the next phrase says. It's not just a famine. It's a famine beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. Now, uh, that really has no bearing particularly or immediately upon Isaac's situation. The fact that his daddy, long before Isaac was ever born, had gone through a famine. But the Holy Ghost wants us to understand that there's not just a crisis in this passage, there is a context to this passage. You see, the fact is, his father had gone through this similar experience, and in doing so, he had failed. Abraham's journey into Egypt was directly outside of the will of God. God brought a famine, but he never told Abraham to leave. Not once do you find recorded in Genesis 13 where God comes along and says, I'm sorry, Abraham, I can't feed you in the famine. You need to go to Egypt and look for help from then. Aren't you glad that God can take care of things no matter what we're going through? He's not working with the same resources that society is. Amen. And so Abraham took it upon himself to go down into Egypt. And this was the first misstep in a series of missteps that caused him to ruin his testimony, not only in the palaces of Egypt, but on the pages of Scripture as well. It stands forever as a stain upon a man's life that, by and large, was marked by great feats and steps and expressions and evidences of faith. So when Isaac comes to this crisis in his life, though Abraham's famine really don't have anything to do with his famine, Certainly, he must have it present in his mind to say this, I don't want to fail like my daddy did. I don't want to make the same mistakes that he made. And can I say praise God that we don't have to make the same mistakes that people that have gone before us have. Listen, we've had a generation of people that wanted to give their kids a better life than they had uh, without giving their kids a better a better spiritual life than they had. And if you wanted, if your goal was to give your child a better life than you had, I'm not necessarily saying you didn't tend to their spiritual needs, but I do think that by and large in society, there has been this focus on material wealth and standing, and oftentimes at the sacrifice of spiritual depth and development. Uh, listen, I'm glad we don't have to make the same mistakes that people that have gone before us have made. I'm glad that we can look at their lives and rejoice in the places where they were honoring God and obedient to God. We can learn from those. We must learn from those things. And likewise, we can look at it and say, hey, listen, experience is a good teacher, but she's she's expensive. It'd be far better to learn it by example. And so Isaac, he, there's a context to this, and no doubt that loomed upon his mind. And then I want you to notice the conclusion of the passage. Now, wait a minute before you get too excited. I didn't say the conclusion of the message. I just said the conclusion of the passage. Because verse number 1 wraps up by telling us what the last scene in this story will look like. It says this, And Isaac went unto Abimelech, king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. 
Now, on its face, you may be tempted to indict Isaac for doing the exact same thing that his daddy did. But there is two marked differences. One, though Gerar is a Philistine city at this time, uh, it's within the bounds of Canaan. And Isaac is not abandoning the land of Canaan when he goes to the Philistine city of Gerar. Whenever Abraham left and went to Egypt, he was leaving the place that God had put him. But Isaac is not leaving the place that God has put him. He's going to a Philistine city, but he's staying in the boundaries of where God would have him to be. There's a second difference that's important, and you'll find it immediately in your text. You probably remember it. Uh, the Bible says this, verse number 2, The Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Then he says this, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee, and will bless thee. In response to this in verse 6, it says Isaac dwelt in Gerar. In other words, God was saying, Stay right here within Canaan, and permitted Isaac to dwell in the land of Gerar, because it was in the very land of Canaan itself. Now, where does that leave us as we read this passage? Well, what what sums it up? How does the Holy Ghost show us the last scene? Isaac did what God commanded him. Isaac had in some way succeeded where his father had failed. Abraham tucked tail and ran down to Egypt and looked for the world to provide for him. Gerar was not far enough away to be untouched by this famine. And Isaac was trusting God in the land of Gerar, just as he had been when he had been what we would call the land of Israel proper. He has obeyed the Lord. He has done what God has called him to do. Let's say it this way. He is where God wants him to be. He is in the will of God. God drew a circle and it included the land of Gerar and said, Isaac, stay here. And Isaac said, yes, sir, Lord. And he stayed in the center of God's will. And yet when we read the rest of our passage, we find that though he did not follow his father's footsteps in fleeing, he did follow his father's footsteps in faithlessness and fearfulness. Now, here's the point I really want to drive home to you. And I'll preach our way getting there. But let me go ahead and say it to you. I'll take a cue from the Holy Ghost and give you the end before I get there. Uh, here's what I want you to understand. We sometimes have taken a passage, a, a, a statement from the book of Job, and I think we have misconstrued it. Do you remember the Bible says in the book of Job, as Job's in the midst of all of his sufferings and all of his trials, says that God had put a hedge about him? Do you remember where it says that? Now, I believe God puts hedges about His people. I don't believe the devil can do anything to you that God doesn't allow him to do. I believe everything that the devil does has to pass through the providential hand of God. There's no question. But hey, listen, I found this. The big problem in my life is not what's on the outside trying to get inside the hedge, but it's who's already living inside the hedge and is tearing up all creation all the time. And we have sometimes taken that to mean this, that if we are in the will of God, we can make no mistakes. We have then imported that into this mindset. If I make mistakes, it must be that I'm not in the will of God. Can I tell you something? If that's your worldview, you're going to be as confused as a termite in a yo-yo. If you think that every time that you mess up, 
It's because you're not in the will of God, you're going to run from place to place trying to find the will of God. Let me tell you a lot simpler truth. It's possible for people to be in the will of God and still mess up. You say, now wait a minute, preacher, I'm doing everything that I ought to be. I'm in church, I'm reading my Bible, i got my family here, I'm living for the Lord, I'm tithing, I'm, I'm going to Sunday school, I'm, I'm trying to learn the Word of God, I'm doing everything that I should. Wonderful! Whenever we pass out gold stars, we'll make sure you get yours. But can I tell you this? Just because you're doing everything right, that don't mean that you can't do something wrong. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight, pitfalls in the place of providence. Because just because you're in the heart and center of the will of God, that don't mean the devil's going to let you alone. Just because you're in the heart and center of the will of God, that don't mean your flesh is all of a sudden going to obey. Just because you're right where God wants you to be, that doesn't mean that there's no danger to your spiritual walk that lurks in those places. I know we always say the safest place to be is in the heart and center of the will of God. And I say amen to that. But I'd say this, we ain't never safe from us. Wherever we are, I found this. You ever found, you ever felt like trouble follows you? I feel like trouble follows me sometimes. I feel like everywhere I go, they, and it can't be me, cause I'm too sweet. It's got to be everybody else following me, amen? No, the simpler answer is this, I can mess up even if I'm in the will of God. I can get messed up even if I'm in the will of God. And it is a naive perspective that anytime somebody does mess up, it must be an indicator they were out of the will of God in the first place. I'd report to you tonight from the basis of Scripture that Isaac is directly in the heart and center and will of God. And he does exactly what his daddy did when his daddy was out of the will of God. Notice three thoughts with me tonight and we'll be done. Notice number one, and I just want to lay this foundation a little deeper. Notice the land where he dwelt. Now somebody's going to say, preacher, he couldn't have been in the will of God. Because he was there in that Gentile land. Oh, it may have been a Gentile land or under Gentile possession at that time. But in fact, it was part of the land that God had promised. Verse number 2 says this, The Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt. So here's the criteria. Number one, not Egypt. Here's what we can say about Gerar. Number one, it's not Egypt. Here's the second criteria. Dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. What land is it going to be? Well, he's going to go on to describe it. Verse number 3, sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee. And he says, I will bless thee. And and he tells him that unto his seed, he'll unto thee and unto thy seed, I will give all these countries. And then he says this, I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven. And will give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In other words, he's talking about the same land that he promised to Abraham. What is that land? Well, it's described in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 24. It says this, Every place whereon the soles of your feet shall tread uh, shall be yours. From the wilderness... Now, where's the wilderness? That's a southern boundary. It's talking about the wilderness of Sinai. From the wilderness and Lebanon, a southern and a northern boundary. Then an eastern and a western one. He says, from the river, the river Euphrates, even unto the uttermost sea, that's the Mediterranean Sea, shall your coast be. I'll let you do it on your own time, but get you a map. And you know what you're going to find? You're going to find that north of the wilderness, south of Lebanon, west of the river Euphrates, and east of the Mediterranean Sea 
is the little city of Gerar. You're going to find it's directly within those bounds. Can I tell you this? God has a will for our life. He has a place He wants us to be. He has a geographic place He wants us to be. He has a spiritual place that He wants us to be. Uh, He has a, a dutiful place that He wants us to be. Uh, It is completely anti-scriptural to suppose that God has no opinions about where we live, what we do, where we go to church, uh, the decisions that we make in our day-to-day life. God has a will for your life. Your number one goal as a Christian should be to know what the will of the Lord is. To with wisdom know the will of God. If you can find the will of God, you've really given yourself the foundation you need to weather anything that might arise. I see that Isaac's command, God commanded him, stay in this place. Then notice God's comfort, verse 3. He says, sojourn in this land and I will be with thee. Let's think about what it means to be in the will of God. Number one, it means to enjoy God's experiential presence. Now, I use the word experiential because there is a difference between God's express presence and His experiential presence. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, God's always with His people. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. But likewise, there's times in our life where we're not walking in communion with God. God says, if you want to walk with me, you're going to have to be in my will. Not only that, He says, I will bless thee. Not only that, He says, unto thee and unto thy seed... I will give all these countries and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. Can I say it this way? It's good to be in the will of God. I'd rather have God with me than not with me. I'd rather have God blessing me than trying to break me. I'd rather have God keeping his promises to me uh, than him having to slay me with the judgments and promises he had made concerning my disobedience. And he says to Isaac, your life will be far better off if you're in my will. He comforts him, saying, Isaac, wherever you may go, I promise you, I will go with you. And if you'll walk with me, I will bless you. That's going to matter before we get to the end of the message tonight. So God gives him a word of comfort. Then notice verse 6. It's a short verse, and I like that, because obedience don't take much to say about it. I found that my kids talk the most when they're trying to talk themselves out of trouble. And haven't you found that's true for you? I talk the most when I'm trying to talk myself out of trouble. But the Bible just says this, Isaac dwelt in Gerar. I see his compliance. He says, all right, Lord, if that's where you want me, that's where I'll be. Hey, listen, God help us to learn how to just hush and obey. Have you ever told your kids that? I have. I've told some of y'all's kids that. Amen. I don't know if they've ever heard it from you. Hush and obey. Hush and obey. Just be quiet and obey. Do as you're told. Man, what good advice that is for us. Hush and obey. Isaac, he didn't have to argue, didn't have to fight, he didn't have to qualify or quantify or characterize. He just said, yes, sir, Lord, if this is what you want out of my life. You know, a lot of what the U.S. military does in, in trying to break people down is try to get them to that place where they'll just say, Yes, sir. And great amounts of tax dollar money, uh, great psychological psyops and development has been brought at, to the forefront of sociological technology to get a bunch of young punks to say, yes, sir. But, you know, it takes the very Holy Spirit of God to get a bunch of 
hard-headed, backslidden Christians to say, yes, sir, Lord. How much better we'd be if we'd learn to just say, yes, sir. I see the land where he dwelt. Let me summarize it by saying he's in the will of God. I don't think any honest student of Scripture could suggest that he's wrong for where he's at. He's where God told him to be. That should be end of story, right? They lived happily ever after. Everything went well. He went. He started an independent, fundamental, King James-only, Bible-believing Baptist church. They're still having a meeting today. In fact, they had dinner on the grounds last week. But that's not what happened. The Bible, in fact, tells us not only about the land where he dwelt, but then it tells us about the lie that he told. Verse 7 says this, The men of the place asked him of his wife. He said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, She is my wife. Lest, said he, the men of the place should kill me for Rebekah, because she was fair to look upon. Once you notice, number one, we see a familiar temptation here. Isn't it funny? The same sins that found his daddy when he was out of the will of God found Isaac when he was in the will of God. We like to think that there's two types of sins, right? There's the sins that find us when we're out, and then there's the sins that find us when we're in. We think when we get out, things like drunkenness and and, and promiscuity and and immorality and and addiction and violence and theft, you know, all those things that other people do, those are the things that find us when we're out. And then we think that maybe only just the gentlest, most tame and obedient of sins find us when we're in the will of God. Probably none of us is so prideful to claim we never sin even when we're walking with God. But we would all like to believe that there is a marked distinction between the sins that tempt us when we're out of the will of God as there are the sins that tempt us when we're in the will of God. Can I just lay some truth on you? The same sins that find us when we're out of God's will are often the very same sins that find us when we are in God's will. And don't think because you're going to the church God wants you to be in. Don't think because you're working the job that you think God wants you to have. Don't think because your home is situated the way that you believe would please God that somehow you are exempt from temptation. Hey, there's no temptation taken us, but such as is common to man. And it's nothing but your stinking pride that would make you think that you are so sanctified that somehow you are above temptation. Hey, the fact is, he could mess up in the will of God the way his daddy messed up when he was out of the will of God. There's a lot of people got out of the will of God by messing up when they was in the will of God. You can't get out. You ever met somebody and thought, well, they just got out of the will of God. You ever said that? You ever heard it? Have you ever thought it? Well, they just got... That, that tells me this. They messed up while they were in God's will. They must have done something wrong in that moment when they were walking with God. So I see a familiar temptation that arises. Then look at verse number 8. I like this. And it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out at a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was sporting with Rebekah, his wife. Now, there's nothing particularly lewd that's implied here. But what it means is there's flirting. They were being affectionate one with another. In other words, I like how it says it was a long time. <laughs> they managed to behave for a long time. But sooner or later, she was just too pretty for Isaac. Sooner or later, 
he was just too handsome for her. Sooner or later, they just missed each other too much, and they found an opportunity to steal away a moment where they could flirt and spend time quietly with one another. You know, it tells me this. I see a familiar temptation, but number two, I see a foregone conclusion. And and it's this. They were married. They tried to act like they weren't married. But sooner or later, them vows were going to come out. Can I tell you something about yourself and myself? We can act for a long time like everything's okay. We can pretend, hey, listen, why was Isaac sporting with Rebecca? Because he loved her. Can I tell you something about your flesh? Your flesh loves sin. I'm not saying him sporting with Rebecca was sin. I'm saying that just as surely as sooner or later, like two magnets, they were attracted to one another, your flesh will be attracted to sin and disobedience. And it tells me that Isaac, who had lied about his wife, he had begun by stepping out of obedience with God. He thought he could get away with it, but... Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Be sure your sins will find you out. Sooner or later, we can try to pretend as though we've not sinned. We can try to pretend as though we've not disobeyed God. But sooner or later, it will come out. They kept it hidden long as they could. But sooner or later, it came to the forefront. I see a foregone conclusion. And then notice verse 9. This is interesting. And wouldn't they be flirting the one time Abimelech's staring out the window? I think my answer would have been, what are you looking out the window at us for? You know? But he was looking out the window. He saw this. And Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, of a surety she is thy wife. And how saidest thou she is my sister? And Isaac said unto him, Because I said lest I die for her. I see in this passage a familiar temptation, a foregone conclusion, but I want you to notice his foolish explanation. Now, I do think he's being honest because it says back in verse number 7 when he told the lie that he feared to say, she is my wife. I believe he was afraid. But isn't it funny that here's a man that is so fixed on being in the will of God so he don't have to fear anything, that the moment he gets in the will of God, he commits sin out of fear for something. It tells me a few things. One, fear is a bad motivator. Fear shouldn't be the thing. We all have fears. We all have natural fears. There are some things we should be afraid of. People say sometimes, preacher, uh, you know, do you have any phobias? I don't like snakes. <laughs> What does it say about you if you do? I don't like snakes, but it ain't a phobia. You say, how do you know, preacher? Because a phobia is an irrational fear of something. You're the irrational one. You know, I think about you, you know. I, I, I don't, I don't, I, we all have fears. I don't think God expects us to never have fears. But those fears should not be the things that dictate our life. And you know, that's the precious thing about living in the will of God. The only thing Isaac had to fear was himself. It's ironic because he gets in the will of God and starts to fear something that he had no reason to fear and then leans upon and trusts in the only thing that he had a reason to fear and that was his own self. 
What a foolish thing that is. And you know, it's always the case when we're in the will of God and we step out of God's will that we've done a foolish thing. Why would you get in the will of God? Why would you get your life right with God? Because you believe your life would be better in the will of God than out of the will of God. That's true. That was a smart move. You did a right thing. So why then when you're in the will of God and you have then all the promises, why would you live in more fear in the will of God when you have nothing to fear than you lived in when you was living out of the will of God? And yet very often that's exactly precisely what we do. We fear the wrong things. I'll tell you what we should be fearful of when we're in the will of God is that we will yield to the influence of the flesh and, and, and engage in something that would displease the Lord. That's the real danger. The real danger is not what finds us in the will of God. The real danger is what kicks us out of the will of God. And in your life, it's a foolish thing to suggest when you're walking with God that there's ever any rational reason to sin. We all do sin. If a man says he doesn't have sin, he lies. He does not the truth. He deceives himself. I'm aware of that. Uh, but there's never a rational reason to sin. It is always irrational for the child of God to sin. So I see in this passage the land where he dwelt and the lie that he told. But notice a final thought here, and that's the Lord that he returned to. Now, there's three steps to this that I want you to notice. Look with me at verse 10. I like this. And Abimelech said, What is this thou hast done unto us? One of the people might lightly have lined with thy wife, and thou shouldest have brought guiltiness upon us. What strange language for a pagan king to be talking. I mean, you're talking about people whose very worship involved illicit activity and promiscuity, harlotry and prostitution in temple. And yet, here is this lost, unregenerate man, at least presumably so. Now, maybe, maybe Abraham had had an influence in his day. But here is a man that presumably is a lost individual He is worse than Isaac. And he looks at Isaac and says, What's the matter with you, boy? You're going to get us all in trouble down here in Gerar. I would say this. We see a strange rebuke. Let me tell you something funny about mostly being in the will of God. Tell you something funny about mostly walking with the Lord. Often God will use people in worse shape than us to tell us truths that we do not want to hear. I can't tell you how many times that I've heard people say, well, preacher, who are you to tell me? I'm nobody. Probably a worse Christian than you are. Truth of the matter is, I got no right, my own merit or righteousness to stand up here and preach to any of you people. If anything, you probably ought to be straightening me out. But you see, it's not me that you ought to be listening to in the first place. It's the Word of God. And often in these moments, it'll be strange people that God uses to speak truth into our life. Sometimes by virtue of the fact that, I mean, sometimes it'll be the people that it makes me think about what Paul says when he says for the time being, hey, listen, you ought to be teaching others, but for the time being, you have need to be taught yourselves. Oftentimes it'll be people that are more messed up than us that God is using to speak truth into our lives that we need to hear and to rebuke us. Here's the question. Do we have the humility to receive truth when it reaches us, no matter where it came from? If it's truth in line with the Word of God, do we have the humility to receive it? I see a strange rebuke. And here's what I'm trying to get you to see behind the lattice work here. 
is, you know, even when he was out of the, even when he was in the place of the will of God, but out of a relationship with the God whose will he was seeking to follow, the whole time that God, he's still working in his life. And you know how we can tell that? Well, notice verse 11. Abimelech charged all his people saying, he that toucheth this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. This is interesting. Isaac doesn't need to leave Gerar. Gerar is the will of God for him. He doesn't need to leave a place of disobedience. He just needs to leave a position of disobedience. He needs to get his heart and his life right. He's going to continue to dwell in this land. So here's what we see. We see a merciful restraint. If this Gentile king, this pagan king, had done what most pagan kings would have done, he would have just killed Isaac and took Rebekah to be his wife himself. But God wouldn't allow him to do so. Tells me this, the same protection that God promised, God came through with. Can I tell you, how do, how do I say this right? I hope the Lord helps me say this right. It's better to be out of the will of God in the will of God than it is to be out of the will of God out of the will of God. Are you ready to get on a train or on a plane or in a box with a fox? Eat some green eggs and ham with me? It's better to be out of the will of God in the will of God than it is to be out of the will of God out of the will of God. In other words, hey, listen, I'd, I'd lot rather sometimes get messed up but be in the right church than get messed up and not be in the right church. I'd lot rather get messed up but be leading my family correctly than get messed up and my family not be being led correctly. I, here's what I'm getting at. I'm saying it's easy to look at it and say, well, preacher, it was all for naught. He was in the will of God, and it didn't help him one bit. Oh, Isaac would disagree with you. He'd say that even though he and his heart was not in the right place, God spared him from a worse punishment that he could have had. And I see just how good our God is, that he would often protect us from the fruits of our very own choices and labors. I see in this passage there is a strange rebuke. You can reject what I'm about to say. I won't care. I believe between verse 10 and verse 11 that Isaac got right. Now, I know it doesn't say that he got right, but I think given the fact that God mercifully restrains Abimelech from hurting and, and the Philistines from hurting him and Rebekah, it's apparent that, that Isaac uh, has, has been brought to heal. He has submitted himself before God. And then if you want further proof, man, look at verse 12. Then Isaac sowed in that land and received in the same year an hundredfold. And guess what? And the Lord blessed. You know what I see here? I see a strange rebuke. I think probably there is, we could say, a hidden repentance that takes place. Then there is a merciful restraint. And finally, here's what we see. We see a welcome return. In other words, I like this. I want to, I want to live my life in such a way that if, hmm, that if I got right with God, I wouldn't have anything to have to change about my schedule. Are you listening? I want to live my life in such a way. I want to walk with God in such a way that if I get wrong with God in my heart, when I get right with God, a person from the outside, unless they're as close to me and could see it, might not even notice that anything had changed. Isaac... He's where God wants him to be. So when he gets right with God, he ain't got to pick up and move because he's where God wants him to be. When he gets right with God, he doesn't have to throw his idols away because he don't have no idols. 
When he gets right with God, he doesn't have to go back and reconcile himself to other people, people he's mistreated or whatever it might be, because he hasn't done that. And in fact, the only outward indicator that we would see that anything has changed is God went from not blessing his life to blessing his life. Tells me, even when he, even when he was messed up, he is still pretty close. But it also tells me this, when he was ready to get right, God was ready for him to get right. Hey, listen, he don't just welcome prodigals that have been in the far country. There's some prodigals that have been over at the neighbor's house. And he welcomes them home too. There's some prodigals just been a county over. And he welcomes them home too. And they don't come home stinking a pig slop, but they need to come home just the same. And I'm thankful that when we're coming home, he's there to welcome us. I'm glad, man, he can bless us. He can, he can work in our life. And I'm glad he didn't hold a grudge against Isaac. Instead, when Isaac got right, God said, good, son, I'm glad you're back. I'm glad you're home. And he began to bless his life. Here's what you need to take away from this. You may be in the heart and center of the will of God. I hope you are. If you're not, you should be. But just because you are, that don't mean that there's no danger. You need to recognize that every person that got out of the will of God got out from a position of being in. And it could happen to you, just like it could happen to me, just like it did happen to Isaac. And if you find that your heart is in a wrong condition with the Lord, you've allowed something to separate your devotion towards the Lord and your relationship, your fellowship with Him. Hey, you ought to come home. He's welcoming you. He's ready. He's waiting on you. You ought to come home and get that right. And He waits with open arms. Let's bow together this evening. As a musician comes to play, uh, I, I want to invite you to come to the altar. I'm glad he don't just welcome prodigals home from that far country. I'm glad when everything on the outside looks right, but something's been wrong on the inside, he's ready to forgive that too. I'm glad when something's been wrong for a long time, he'll forgive it. But I'm glad when something's just been wrong for a short time, he'll forgive it. And I'm so thankful that he'll walk with me Even when I'm walking with him, I still need him to walk with me. And I'm glad he will day by day take watch care over our soul. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.